Uh, early on in our marriage, Emily and I decided that we were going to run a 5K race together. We're not big runners, but we we're you know in our early 20s. It's 5K is only about three miles, and so it was going to be a, an okay kind of a thing. And besides, it was put on by our church. Our church was sponsoring this, and and the proceeds for it were going to the disability ministry at our church, which is a, which is a ministry that's of course dear to my heart. For that many of you know that, and so we decided we we're going to do the Run for the Stars uh, in in Wheaton, Illinois, and and we we signed up for it. We did a little bit of training, probably not as much as we should have, but when the day of the race came, it was awesome. The weather was perfect. We decided that we were going to run it together, a nice slow pace, not trying to, you know, break any records or anything like that. And it was just, it was a beautiful day for a run. It was a nice, easy thing. We've got thousands of people running alongside of us, and, and we took a nice, easy pace through the beautiful uh, suburbs, the wealthy suburbs of, of Wheaton, Illinois, and we saw a couple of our pastors running too. And it was just a really fun day. And so we made it an annual tradition starting that, that, one, that first year, and then we did it for about three or four years before we moved here. And then we moved here, and then the Ludington Lake Stride kind of uh, became that sort of fun community, good cause uh, race for us. The past couple of years I've done that, and, and I've run it with friends, and so, so it's a nice, enjoyable thing. And So when I think of a 5K, when I think of a race like that, that's what I think of. You know, not too far, nice and easy, good cause, community-driven. But I heard about a different kind of 5K. Uh, some sadistic person has come up with a way of, of turning that nice, enjoyable thing where you know the route, you don't have anything in your way. They've turned that nice, enjoyable 5K into something more like torture. They have this thing called a warrior dash, and rather than just giving you a path that you can just kind of go and they give directions, you go here, you go here, you go here, and then you end up you know, finishing at Stearns Park right along the beach there, nice, fun, easy task. Instead of that, they put up a bunch of obstacles in your way. And you see this one's like a mud pit. The names of these obstacles are just kind of show how bad this kind of a thing is. One of them is called Alcatraz. You think, okay, I'm not going to do a race with an obstacle on it called Alcatraz. Or one's called Chained Up or, or Pitfall or Vicious Valleys or Storming Normandy. I think these are not the kind of things that I want to do when I'm going to run three miles. And then there's the one at the very end of the I think it's at the end of the race that's probably the most disconcerting to me. It's called the Warrior Roast. And they have lines of fire. I'm thinking, who does this kind of thing? Yeah, I know. I know. And if that's not bad enough, they've got an even more dismal race called the Tough Mudder that at least one of the people in our congregation this morning has done. And that's not just 3.1 miles. That's now extending the mileage up to 10, 12 miles. And, and if things like fire aren't bad enough, they're going to put you through an ice bath and then actual electrical shocks as you go through. The, I'm not kidding. This is actually a picture of people running through and getting electrocuted as they run through the race. What kind of sadistic person is going to turn a nice, gentle, enjoyable 5K into something like that? I mean, I like my races to be nice and easy, no obstacles, no surprises. I don't need to get muddy to be happy. I don't need to have to go under ice baths or get electrocuted to be happy. I just want it to be a nice, straightforward path, a nice, easy Saturday morning run. And really... I want my life to be like that too. I don't want lots of twists and turns and surprises and obstacles and all these things in my way. I just want a nice, clear path from where I am to where God wants me. I want it to be clear, straightforward, no surprises, no turns, no quests. But the problem is, life just isn't like that. As you guys know from your own experience, life is full of all sorts of things that you never would have thought were going to happen. It's not a straight line from where you are today or where you started to where God is taking you. There are all sorts of surprises along the way, all sorts of obstacles, things that get in the way. You think, why on earth did that happen? In short, life is a mess. I mean, you know this. It's not straightforward. It's not predictable. It's a mess. 
So the question then is, how do you actually live in the mess? How do you have any kind of semblance of hope? How do you have something to grab onto when you've got life that's full of twists and turns and obstacles and surprises? How do you live in the mess? I really love the story that we're looking at this morning because it's full of impossible obstacles, and right alongside the impossible obstacles are messages of incredible hope and promise. So we're looking at Genesis 15 to 18 uh, this morning as we continue on in the book of Genesis. Uh, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you've not already done that. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, so if you're using the Pew Bibles, you can just turn a little bit in, and you'll get to that first book, get to chapter 15. That's where we're going to start this morning. So we're going to look at Genesis uh, 15 to 18 in four scenes that correspond to the four uh, chapters here. So we'll start in uh, the first scene, which is uh, recorded in Genesis 15. So we're picking up the story of Abram sometime after God had made an incredible promise of blessing to Abram and called him out of his homeland. So this is how our passage starts. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So remember, when we picked up the story of Abram, it's Genesis 12, and God takes this man who's living in a pagan context, uh, doesn't know who God is. He takes him and says, come away from those things, go away from your father, away from your homeland, away from your ancestors, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And he promises him this incredible blessing that he will make him into a great nation. Not only will he bless Abram, but he will make Abram himself a blessing to all the nations in the world. So he gives him this incredible promise. God then re-engages him here uh, sometime after that, sometime in the next decade in Genesis 15, reminding him of the the great promise. He, He brings him a message that should be good news to him. He says, I am your shield. I am your great reward. And yet the problem is that there's this huge, glaring obstacle. And that's what Abram points out. See, Abram knows that whatever God has promised him, all this blessing, that he will be a great nation, all those things, none of that is any good unless he actually has a child. None of the promises that God has made to him, that that his offspring will inherit the land, that he will be a blessing, that he will be made into a great nation, all of that is just worthless. It's impossible if there's no child. And so that's what Abraham brings up. He says, okay, God, you are my shield, you are my great reward, but but you haven't given me any children, and so there's no future for me. All those promises that you promised when you called him out in Genesis 12 are all up in the air. And so God reengages him. Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And this is a great object lesson for Abram, because it's not just that God is going to make a promise to Abram and then just expect him to trust him, which is, uh, would be enough, really, but he wants him to feel the immensity and the beauty of the promise that he's giving him. So he takes Abram, this old, childless man who has no hope for the future because he's got no son, no heir, and he takes him outside at night, and he tells him to look up at the night sky. 
Now, even around here, even if you're living right in the city of Ludington, where there's a lot of lights around at night, if you look up, you're going to see a ton of stars. But if you actually get away from the city, away from all the artificial lights on a, on a clear, dark night, and you look up into the night sky, you'll notice that it's just bursting with light. It's not just that there's kind of the Big Dipper and Orion and a couple of stars you can see from town, but it's just bursting with stars. The sky is just unbelievably full of stars, and that's what Abram would have seen because he wouldn't have been around a city or all these artificial lights. He would have been out in this dark, clear night looking up at the sky. You can imagine it would have taken his breath away. Here's someone who, who just wants one child, and God takes him out to the stars and says, look at those stars. That's what your offspring are going to be like. And so Abram believes. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. So after getting this beautiful picture of what God's blessing is going to look like for his family, that his offspring are going to be as numerous, as countless as the stars in the sky, Abram believes God. He takes God at his word. He believes that God does, will do what he says he's going to do. But there's another part of the promise that God wants to remind Abram of. So he continues in verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So God has not just promised Abram offspring, as countless as the stars, but he's also um, promised him this land, the land of, that the Canaanites are now living in. He's, he's promised that this will be the land that his offspring will possess. And, and so Abram, again, sees the big obstacle that he doesn't possess the land now, and he doesn't have offspring to possess it. So he wants to know for certain, well, what is God going to do to ensure that he actually gets this land? How is this promise actually secure? And we don't have time to read through all of the uh, four chapters that are before us this morning, which is one reason why it's so important for you to be reading the Bible at home so you can not miss out these little chunks. These are important parts. But uh, the rest of chapter 15, then, uh, we don't know exactly what's going on with the ceremony that, that God takes Abram through because there isn't anything else in the Bible that exactly relates to it, and there's nothing else in the, the parallels from the ancient Near Eastern world that really explains fully and adequately what this means. But what we do know is that God is using a ritual ceremony that Abram would have understood, even though we don't fully understand it, but Abram would have understood what he's saying, and he was sealing, God was sealing and confirming the promise in a way that Abram would have understood. So in this first scene, chapter 15, the major obstacle is introduced. Abram still doesn't have any kids. And yet at the same time that the obstacle comes to the forefront, God is re-engaging Abraham with this great promise. So that's setting us up for the second scene, which is in Genesis 16. So remember, the big point here is that Abram still doesn't have any offspring. And God had promised him offspring. So, Genesis 16, scene 2. Now, Sari, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sari said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sari, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with her, and she conceived. Now, this is an outrageous turn in the story. Right? I mean, we read this and we think, what on earth is Sarah thinking? What on earth is Abram thinking here? 
And yet somehow it made sense in the ancient world to do this. Remember, not having descendants in the context that Abram and Sarah lived in was disastrous. It was a catastrophe. It meant that they had no future, no hope. And one of the most basic reasons for them to marry was to have children, to pass on the family line. So this was a huge catastrophe. And we actually have evidence of, of marriage contracts from about this time that, that make a, a stipulation for exactly what Sarah did. If, if a wife is not able to bear children for her husband, she can actually, like Sarah does, suggest a surrogate so that somehow that they can have a kid and continue on their legacy and their family line. So yes, it's an outrageous thing, of course, but somehow it made sense to them as a way to kind of secure their future, secure the promises that God had made them. In other words, it was an acceptable cultural solution to this huge obstacle that they were facing. But of course, it's not actually a solution. So as we're going to find out here, the rest of chapter 16 shows how poorly that actually works as a solution to having no children. So immediately after Hagar conceives, she starts acting out and out of her place and mistreating Sari, and then Sari mistreats her, and then Hagar runs off into the wilderness, and it looks like uh, the, the heir, the supposed surrogate heir, is just going to be lost to the household before he's even born. It takes God sending an angel to go and convince Hagar to go back to the household so that this human-devised solution can even make any sense. But for us as readers, the problem goes beyond the fact that Hagar is just causing trouble within the household. The problem is that Hagar's son, Ishmael, who she bears at the end of chapter 16, that's not the heir that God had promised Abram. So it's not that Ishmael is a solution to the obstacle, but in fact, Ishmael is another obstacle that God is going to have to overcome. Because now there's a competing heir, an artificial heir, who's going to compete with the true heir that God had promised Abram. Of course, Abram doesn't know this at this point. He thinks he has solved the problem. He has a son. His own flesh and blood is now going to be his heir. He thinks this is solved. It's going to take another scene then in chapter 17 for Abram to understand what is happening here. So we turn to chapter 17, the third scene. Once again, it begins with God appearing to Abram. Look at Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. And God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Okay, remember, when God first spoke to Abram, it was back in uh, Genesis 12, Abram was 75 years old. So this is 25 years after the initial promise of blessing that God gave uh, to Abram. So in, in that intervening 25 years, this is what's happened. First, there was the promise when he was 75. And then sometime in that period, God again says, I'm your shield, I'm your great reward. And Abram says, listen, you haven't given me any children. 
11 years after that initial uh, promise, when he's 86 years old, he gets himself a surrogate heir. He gets himself Ishmael. And now, at the end of that 24, 25-year period, Abram is 99, his son Ishmael is about 13, and God is going to re-engage him and get more specific about the promise that he had. Now, um, part of what God is doing here is giving Abram a new name, and this is a really significant development. For me as a preacher, this is a really nice development because it's been really hard knowing Abraham by the name Abraham to keep trying to say Abram. You know, it's a shorter name. I need to add that extra syllable. So every single time I've been saying Abram the past couple weeks, I have to kind of think about it. Am I saying the right name? So finally, the the good part about this uh, part in the story now is finally we can stop saying Abram and we can just say Abraham from now on. We don't have to keep truncating the name. That was a joke. It's not actually an important thing. (laughs) And what you were communicating is it wasn't a very funny one, so move on. Okay. I apologize. But in truth, it is a significant move here. This, this name change is saying that Abraham now has a new destiny. So before his name meant uh, exalted father, Abram. Exalted father points back to your ancestors. But Abraham now says father of many. So it's pointing to the future. It's pointing to his descendants. So this is a huge shift, not just because it's easier to say his name now, but because in, instead of just looking back to the past, Abraham, that name is now looking forward to the future that God has has promised for him. And then the middle part of Genesis 17, God is going to seal this everlasting covenant with a sign. He's going to give him circumcision as a a physical sign that this covenant is an everlasting covenant. All the males in Abraham's family will be circumcised, and that will be a marker of the promise that God has made to them, the covenant he's made. But then after that, God tells Abraham something that must have been pretty shocking to him. Picking up again in verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will become the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Now, until this past week as I was studying this, I always, for some reason, thought that this is what Abraham had been waiting to hear for 25 years of his life. Because I thought, well, I know that Ishmael is not really the true heir, but, but Abraham thinks he has actually solved the problem of the heir. Remember, the big obstacle that Genesis 15 to 18 is pushing us toward is the fact that Abraham is still childless. He doesn't have a true heir. But of course, for Abraham and Sarah, they have Ishmael. So they have come up with a human solution to that big obstacle. They think that that is already solved. Abraham's heir will be the surrogate, will be Ishmael. So you can understand what Abraham says to God then. Verse 17. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So remember the timeline. Seventy-five years old. God promises to bless Abraham. At 86 years old, Abraham now has a son, not through Sarah, his wife, but through Hagar. He has a son, now an heir at 86. But now, later than that, 13 years later, at 99, God now says, it's not just that you're going to have a son, but Ishmael is not the true heir. He's not the one who's going to inherit the promises in the covenant. You're actually going to have a son through your own wife, Sarah. 
So you can imagine why Abraham is saying, well, why not just bless Ishmael? I mean, this is kind of absurd. I'm 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. This is just absurd that you would say that, that that's what the promise is. Now, why not just make Ishmael the covenant son? God responds, verse 19. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he'd finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. So it's not that God is going to abandon this son, Ishmael, but Ishmael is not the son that God had promised to him in the first place. He's not the answer to that huge obstacle of Abraham not having the true heir. He's another obstacle that's now a competing heir with a true heir. So God is going to give Abraham a son the natural way, through his own wife. Although it's kind of odd to say that that this is the natural way to give a son to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. But nonetheless, it is actually through that marriage covenant that God is going to bless Abraham with a son. So it's scene three then, Genesis 17, is going to seal the promise of God's blessing, get more specific about what this actually means, and it finally gets more detailed about how God is going to overcome that huge glaring obstacle of no son for Abraham. God is going to bring a son named Isaac laughter. Scene four then in chapter 18 is going to continue that same year of Abraham's life, but Sarah is going to get in on this promise too and now understand it. So here's how it starts, uh, innocently enough in chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. And the text continues on. They're saying, oh, yes, that's fine. Basically, it's just a picture of Abraham extending hospitality. He doesn't know that this is uh, a set of messengers from God. He's just extending uh, great hospitality. He's, He's acting as a great host. And so they sit down to this meal. And then they ask what might have been a little bit of a rude question. Verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. It looks like it's, it's perhaps a little bit rude for them to be asking this because Abraham has a pretty terse response. He doesn't really get into the reason. He's just saying, okay, she's there. Let's, let's kind of get over that. Let's not talk about that. But this messenger who we as readers know is actually a messenger from God is asking about her for a reason. He says in verse 10, Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Abraham has already heard this message, but Sarah is now going to hear it for the first time. And so we see how Sarah responds to this news, picking up halfway through verse 10. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now, as with Abraham's laughter, we understand Sarah laughing to herself. I mean, look at verse 11. This is kind of a a weak translation. It's just saying that she's past the age of childbearing. What, What that's actually saying here is that she has gone through menopause. I mean, she's not menstruating anymore, which Abraham and Sarah and you and I and everyone old enough to understand knows that it is impossible for her to have a child. So what's clear from the text is that God's promise that he makes to Abraham cannot come true by anything that Abraham does. There's nothing humanly possible that's going to make this promise be able to come true. The obstacle to God's plan isn't just really, really difficult. The obstacle is impossible. So Genesis 16 gave a possible human solution, a difficult but a possible solution to the problem of having no heir. Hagar and Ishmael was a possible human solution to that. But Genesis 17 shows that that's not the way that God had intended this. God hadn't intended them to go do something really hard to try to uh, find a way of making this promise come true. God is going to give Abraham and Sarah a child. And because that is laughably impossible at this point in their lives, his name is going to be Laughter. What we have to understand is that there is absolutely no way that God's promise can come true. In the the scope of what we know is possible, the promise that God makes is hopeless. Infertility, old age, menopause, that means that the obstacle of, of having no child for Abraham to pass on his lineage to, that obstacle is impossible to overcome. It's not just really, really, really hard. It is truly impossible. And that's why I love what God says in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Your translation might have, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? This is pointing to something that is, that is beyond the standards of what we know is normal or naturally possible. It's, it's something that when you see something hard or, or, or wonderful done, when you see God do something like this, God's the only way it could be done. And so when you see this, your response is astonished praise. I mean, this is what God is preparing these two people for. He's preparing Abraham and Sarah for something that's incredible, something that's wonderful, something that's beyond the scope of, of their imagination. God is going to do something that's so far beyond what they have seen in their lives that their only response is going to be with just filled with awe. They're going to be filled with wonder at what God has done. The lesson that, that these chapters are teaching us in Genesis is that There's nothing that can stop God's plan. God overcomes every obstacle to his good plan, even obstacles that are impossible, truly impossible obstacles. When God makes a promise, there is nothing that is able to stop God's promise. Is there anything too hard for God? I mean, that's the question that Sarah was asked, but it's the same question that you and I come to. Is anything too hard for God. As we start reading our Bibles, we see all sorts of incredible promises that God makes. We we see what the course of history is going to look like, and and it's truly inspiring. It's awe-striking. But then we start to think about that question. Will God actually do those things? Is God actually able to do those incredible promises that he has put in his word? Is anything too hard for God? 
We've said before, life isn't easy. It's not a straight line from here to there with no obstacles, no surprises, no twists and turns, no obstacles. I mean, Abraham himself spent 25 hard years waiting for God to do something to move his promise forward. He heard a promise, but there's this huge obstacle. He's childless. For a quarter of a century, 25 years, that huge obstacle is still in place. No true son by his wife. Until it got to the point where it just, there was no hope for it anymore at all. It was just an impossible thing. And yet God is setting Abraham up for a wonderful surprise. God is setting Abraham up for awe-filled laughter, the laughter of a man and his wife who have moved past the stage of hope, well past hope, into what's impossible. If you're going to take anything away from this message, this is what I want you to know. You can trust God's promise no matter what. No matter how things look to you right now, no matter how messed up things are, you can trust God's promise. No matter how ineffective God's plan looks to you in your life situation right now, you can trust him. He will do what he said he was going to do. God is faithful. He is trustworthy. You can trust God's promise no matter what. And do you know how I'm certain of that? Do you know how we can know for sure that God is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do? Well, it's because he sent his son Jesus. That means that there's nothing that's going to stop his promise. He has effectively moved his plan forward. So we have an, an advantage over Abraham. Abraham heard with God, from God. He heard these visions at several points in his life. He walked with God. He saw uh, incredible visions of God's faithfulness. But we get to see more of the story. We get to see what God has done through Abraham's line, coming all the way down through Christ and now beyond Christ into the, what the, he has done through the church, through the Holy Spirit, and what he is going to do. We have a picture of that too. And then we have the seal, above all else, we have the seal that God is faithful to all of his promises. God sent his son into the world to accomplish his good plan for the world. That's what Paul's talking about. We can flip to the, the New Testament here. He's writing a letter to a church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what he says. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And do you hear that? For how, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. Every promise of God is confirmed and affirmed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the crux of God's good plan for the world. The, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus means that God fulfills his promises. He does exactly what he set out to do. Jesus means that everything is going to be okay. Just like God said it would be. So Abraham is going to get to see Sarah give birth to a son named Isaac, just like God had told him. And we get to see that God never gave up on that promise, and so he extends his work through Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, Israel, and their sons, all the way down through history until we get this scared young woman who gives birth to a son named Jesus who's going to change the course of history forever. So when your life is chaotic and confusing, when you look around, you're not sure what's going on, you see all these obstacles, everything in the way, and, and you see pain, and you see things that are scary, and you're tempted to just give up on the whole thing and despair, 
Well, you look to Jesus and you know that God is faithful to his promises. You look to Jesus and know that God does not hold anything back in accomplishing the good plan that he has set it to accomplish. You can trust God's promises no matter what. See, if God is going to send his own son, it means that nothing is going to stop that plan. We we read this a little bit earlier from Romans 8, and we said we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? There's nothing that can stop God's plan. Paul continues, verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, is anything too hard or too wonderful for God? Well, of course not. God accomplishes his plan no matter what. No matter how things look to you today, right now, as you look at your life, as you look at the scope of the world, as you look at history, no matter what things look like to you, God is putting forward his plan, and there is nothing that can stop it. And what that means then is that you and I, who have heard this promise, who have heard this truth, you and I are now free to go all in with our lives because we know that God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. You and I are now free to stake our whole existence on the promises of God. We're to put our whole life in his hands and know that it's going to be okay, that he will do exactly what he has set out to do. The first step in that is putting your whole life in Jesus' hands, putting all of your trust, all of your hope in Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus means everything. If you can come to the point of putting your whole life in his hands, then you can live with total confidence. Because if God didn't spare his own son, Jesus, that means he's going to give you all good things. There's nothing that can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. So the first part of this is putting your whole life in his hands. And maybe you haven't done that yet. Maybe you're kind of stuck somewhere along the line. Maybe you don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you don't know what this good plan of God is. Maybe you don't know his promises yet. It has to start right here. You have to first find out who Jesus is because he is the confirmation, as we've seen, he's the confirmation of all of God's good promises. After you've taken that first step then, the second step is then to take up your part in this whole role. The incredible thing is that God uses his church, normal people like you and me, living our normal everyday lives. God uses his church to proclaim the good promises that are yes in Jesus. That means that you and I get the joy-filled privilege of telling others about God's great rescue. We get to tell people about this promise that started way back with Abraham and has gone through all of history and has culminated in Jesus Christ and and will fully and finally show up in God's kingdom at the very end. God's good plan fully worked out in history. Of course, there are some things that are going to get in the way. 
Sometimes we can look at everything around us, we can look at our lives, look at all the, these obstacles, and think, well, well, God's just not doing it fast enough. And we get really frustrated that, God, why don't you do more? Why don't you, you know, take the world and shake it up and, and fix it back according to your good purposes? We, we can get the, the impression that, that somehow we want God's kingdom more than God wants God's kingdom. But of course, as soon as you say it like that, you realize how foolish of a statement that is. I mean, who is more zealous for God's plan than God himself? Well, of course, no one. God brings forward his plan perfectly in his timing with his power. That's why it's unstoppable. I mean, Abraham kind of thought maybe God's plan wasn't going to go forward, and so he tried to sort of make a way for the plan by getting the surrogate, right? But that didn't solve the obstacle. That just put another obstacle in the way. We have to trust that God is effectively doing his plan. Nothing's, nothing's going to stop it. But on the other side, we can't just get stuck there and, and sort of somehow think, well, okay, I've got no part in this because God does call us to be his people and do his work. He has called us to obedience. So on the other side, we might start thinking, well, I, I'm not very strong. I'm, I'm really flawed. I'm really weak. I don't have all the answers. I'm not perfect. And so we think, well, I, I'm only going to get in the way. I'm going to be like Abraham, putting more obstacles in the path rather than actually contributing. But the thing is, we don't have to worry about that either because, again, remember that the effectiveness, effectiveness of God's plan is in God's power. I mean, listen, I, I would never, never, never dare to stand up and preach if I didn't believe the truth of what God's saying in Genesis 15 to 18. I mean, how could you possibly dare to stand up and, and proclaim God's word if somehow the success of God's plan would rest on your own shoulders? I mean, it's, it's impossible. It would be hopeless. And likewise, you're never going to dare to speak the hope of the gospel to your colleagues or your classmates or your friends or your neighbors if you think that you have to be perfect to be part of God's plan. Because you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be strong enough. But the thing that this is teaching us is that it's God's power overcoming obstacles. It's God's power overcoming human weakness and, and poor decisions and the whole thing. It's God's plan going forward in God's power. God's in charge. And so rather than despairing of ever being used by God, ever being actually part of his good plan, well, try this instead. Instead of despairing, pray that God would actually make you a stronger follower of Jesus so that you can contribute to this plan. Pray that God would make you a bright light that, that shines so brightly that others see it and they see the hope of the gospel through how you live your everyday life. Because you're not going to be perfect, but you can still be a conduit of the gospel. God can still use you and all of your faults and all of your failings to show people the way to hope and life. So you pray that God is going to be the one acting, and then you act knowing that it's God's power who makes it effective. Whether you've never been in church before on a Sunday morning, or whether you've been in church for every single Sunday of your entire life, this is what you need to know. You can trust God's promise no matter what. There's nothing that's going to stop God's promise. His plan, as we read through scripture, is unfathomably good, and there is nothing in the entire universe that is ever going to thwart it. God is good, and he effectively brings his plan forward. That is the hope of the church. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you that you work past and despite of and even through human failure and human weakness. 
I pray that you'd speak into our hearts the truth that, that you're the one who's powerful. You're the one who's in control. Through the working of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak the truth of the gospel into our lives so that we can live with total confidence in you and so that we would have a, a hope that is infectious to those who don't have hope. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.